John chapter 9. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbours and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened? they asked. He replied, The man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked. I don't know, he said. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, Well, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, He is a prophet. They still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that, he, that now he can see? We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind, but how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had already decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow... We don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, Now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, 
Yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me, so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Uh, Let's pray before we look at this great passage together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the way that Jesus came so that we can see you. And we pray that as we enjoy John chapter 9, the beautiful chapter that it is, uh, the way that John has arranged it for us, uh, we pray that we can enjoy the ride, we pray that we can enjoy everything that you've written there for us, but of course we pray that we can see. We pray that we can see Jesus clearly and respond to him appropriately, and we pray this for his sake. Amen. Well, as you probably picked up, uh, our passage today revolves around the idea of seeing. Uh, The adjective blind, the noun I, the verb to see, they all occur ten times in the passage so that you can see, so that you don't miss the point. It's all about seeing. But of course, if you want to see clearly today, you have to clearly understand blindness, and there's more than one sort of blindness. That's the idea the chapter's going to revolve around. There's the what we might call today legal blindness, where you you legally are recognised as someone that can't see. Uh, And so I work with uni students. Uh, When I was in Albury a number of years ago, I worked with a student named Nathaniel who was legally blind. And he was a remarkable guy, totally blind, couldn't see at all. Uh, He would walk around university with his cane and could navigate the whole university. He could get up of a morning, leave the student residence, walk to university, find his way all around, and do that without being able to see. In fact, he could read, even though he couldn't see. He had his own braille, uh, he had his own computer, he could type assignments, hand it all in. It was just phenomenal watching Nathaniel and what this blind man was able to do. Now, one of the highlights of my time in Aubrey is when Nathaniel actually delivered a sermon at a church we were helping out one day. He, he wrote a sermon, got up, uh, delivered the whole sermon, and it was just fantastic to see this blind guy helping us see Jesus. It was really a beautiful experience. There's, there's that kind of blindness. But, of course, there's, there's another sort of blindness, uh, a blindness that perhaps we all suffer from at different times, Some suggest it's more prevalent in males. I don't know if I really want to go quite that far. I'm just going to call it situational blindness. That blindness that can just crop up during the events of the day and just, well, make you unable to see. It happens to me all the time. It particularly happens to me when things are put 
where they go. I don't know if you have this mythical place in your house, but in my house, we have this place, and I've never been able to find it, but it's, it's where things go. So, for example, I might be looking for the tomato sauce, and I'll be looking all through the pantry for the tomato sauce, but I can't find it. It's as if it's just not there, and so I'll ask my dear wife, where's the tomato sauce? And she'll tell me it, it's where it goes. And as soon as she says that, I know I'm lost, because I've never found that place. And so, again, I look all through the pantry, uh, and in the end, I just have to cry out for help. I say, honey, I can't find it. It's not there. And she just opens the pantry, and this miracle occurs, and this place just materialise where things go when she grabs the sauce and hands it to me. Or it's the same with Tupperware. You know, I might be looking for a container to put something in the fridge, and so I'll say, honey, where's, where's the red container? And she'll tell me it's where it goes. And then again, I know I'm lost. I look for it. I just can't find it. And wherever where it goes is, she can just find it and hand it to me. That's situational blindness. I don't know if you ever get that. But situational blindness, blindness it cannot be just about things. It can sort of come into the realm of people that I've discovered. I know that situational blindness is, is something that affects me because it, it, it affects my relationships. So often, you know, before my wife comes home, I know that she has a different definition of cleanness to I do. So what I'll do before she comes home is I'll clean the bench. I know she loves a clean bench, so I'll do that. I'll clean it all down. But I get this thing called situational blindness. And so even though I've cleaned the bench for like 20 minutes before she comes home... As soon as she gets into the door, do you know what she does? She cleans the bench. It's like she can just see things that I can't. And I've had a genuine go to clean it, but she's got to re-clean it. She's got to do it all. But I don't just miss kind of physical things in this relational blindness. I end up missing all these clues as well. So again, just the other day, my wife was explaining to me this book that she's been listening to, these audio books, and I knew my role. My role as the husband is to do this thing called reflective listening. So when she speaks, I listen, and I repeat it back to her so that she thinks that I'm not actually distracted and thinking about the footy or something else. So she was telling me all about this book that she'd been uh, listening to, and when she paused, I'm like, oh, that's my clue. Uh, Now I just tell her what I've heard. And so I went, oh, so, you know, the book was telling you this. And she kind of just looked at me, no, that's not what the book's about. I went, oh, right, so she explained it to me again. So I went, oh, okay, so the book was explaining this to you. And again, I tried to show her what I could see, my understanding. But she said, no. And so she explained it to me a third time. And that's when I began to pick up on something. I said, honey, am, am I frustrating you right now? There's just there's something about your voice. I feel like I'm in not getting what the book's about. I feel like I'm just kind of making your day a little bit worse. How are you? I haven't upset you, have I? Uh, And thankfully, she said to me, no, I'm fine. And I really needed that reinforcement because I really thought she was getting annoyed at me. And so thankfully, I didn't suffer from blindness at that particular occasion. But the beauty of this chapter is that it interacts with all the different sorts of blindness that can affect us as people. There's the physical blindness, but then there's the situational and the relational blindness that can come along. Uh, and of course, the punchline is going to be, make sure by the end of this chapter that you can see, that you can clearly see who Jesus is. Now, that little bit of the backstory, you guys have been going through John, so you probably know this already, but just remember where we're at. Chapters 7 to 10 of John, uh, they happen in between two feasts, and they have to do with all the debates that are going on between Jesus and the Pharisees in between these two feasts. Uh, the first is the feast or the celebration of atonement, 
Uh, that's the feast that they've had just a few chapters before. Atonement or the Feast of Atonement is all the feasting and the celebrating you do when you remember all the things that are necessary for God to forgive you. Atonement is about everything that God has done to make your relationship with him right. And that feast has just happened. And then, seven days later after that, they have another feast, the Feast or the Festival of Tabernacles or Tents, as we might call it today. Uh, And that one's a really quite symbolic one for what's happening here. In the Feast of Tents or Tabernacles, you're basically remembering the provision of God. You're remembering the way that God provided for his people during the whole Exodus event. The Exodus event is when God, when Yahweh demonstrated, gave signs of his power. He showed that he was the God of the whole world and on the basis of those signs and those great miracles, uh, Israel were freed so they can enjoy God. But of course, if you remember your Bible, they were then turned into a bunch of grumblers and whingers and they complained against God and were punished in the, uh, the desert for 40 years. But that's one of the, uh, the events of the Feast of Tabernacles in the background, the whole Exodus event. But of course, the Feast of Tabernacles also celebrates the ongoing provision of God. It's linked to the harvest time where God's people celebrated the way that God feeds them and cares for them and sustains them. So the forgiveness of God and the redemption and the ongoing provision of God are the ideas that are just floating around in the background of the people of Israel as we come into our chapters. Uh, And so as we get into those chapters, we need to just kind of keep that in our background. So hopefully you have your Bible open with you. uh, And we're finally ready to have a look at uh, John uh, chapter 9, verse 1. So read along with me. Uh, John 9, verse 1. As he was passing by, he saw a man blind from birth. What I love about the Gospel of John is just so well written and it just invites you to ask all the right questions. And so if you pay attention with your eyes, if you look at what John has written, you'll notice that Jesus isn't mentioned at the beginning of John 9. It's just he, there's pronouns. If you want to figure out who he is which, spoiler alert, is actually the whole purpose of the chapter, to figure out who he is. If you want to figure out who he is, you need to go back to the end of chapter 8, where you read this. Jesus, that's the last time he was mentioned in verse 58, Jesus said to them, I assure you, before Abraham was, I am. At that, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus was hidden and he went out of the temple complex. Really quite uh, verses that are powerful for us this morning because it introduces who Jesus is. He says that, well, I am. In Greek, that's ego eimi, that's Yahweh, I am who I am. In Hebrew, that's who Jesus is declaring himself to be. This is God in the flesh. But the thing about Jesus, if you remember from John 1, he's the great revealer, but he also has the ability to hide. He reveals God but he can also hide God. And so once he revealed who he is, that he is God, well, they rejected him, and so he hides himself from their view at the end of verse 58. They can't see him. And that's the introduction to our passage. He, Jesus, the great I am, has revealed himself, but he's also hiding himself. With that in mind, we then meet a man born blind, although I prefer to call him the man born bland, but we'll get to that. For now, we'll call him the man born blind. 
And it, he becomes the, uh, the subject of some theological sort of speculation in verse 2. His not, uh, disciples, Jesus' disciples, questioned him. Rabbi, they say, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind. See the way that the story is kind of revolving around the man born blind at this point. They see him and it just sparks a little bit of an inquiry in their mind. What is it about this man, Jesus, that meant that he's worse off? Now this guy is blind and within the social context of the day, that means he's probably a little bit similar to the way that we think about homeless people today. When we see someone who's homeless, it's reasonably obvious. It's reasonably obvious that they are well and truly on the low, low end of the socioeconomic scale. They're disadvantaged. They're someone that you just wouldn't want to be. We've all got our standards of poverty within our culture. And if you're homeless, you're really on the bottom end of that. And it was similar with this blind guy. When you look at him, he really is part of the, the less desirable end of the cultural spectrum. And so they ask the question, Why? And the mistake they seem to be making, and this is really quite a tricky one, is they try to look at the man's circumstances and extrapolate out from that to figure out what his relationship with God is like. That's a really tough relationship to work out, someone's setting in life and their relationship with God. And even as a Christian, even as someone who's read a fair bit of the Bible, even as someone like me, this is still a mistake I make today. I know that God can discipline the people he loves, And I know that God can judge people, so I know that God can be negative towards people and that you can't figure out from that whether he's disciplining you or punishing you. But I've got to admit, when I drive past a house today that looks like it's in ill repute, when I drive past one of those houses that doesn't have curtains but it's got... Have you seen those houses? They have blankets over the windows, not curtains. And they've got sort of grass in the front yard that's about a foot high and you can see the car in the driveway, it's old, it's broken down. I reckon I've never driven past one of those houses that you can just instantly recognise as being belonging to someone who's poorer than most. I've never driven past a house like that and thought to myself, geez, I bet they've got a great relationship with God. I've never walked past a homeless person and just thought, wow, there's someone God must love. Look at the way he's blessed them. I still, I don't know if I'm like you at this point, but I just, I find it really hard not to link poverty with God being against you. I never assume if you're poor that you're really in the good books with God. The disciples questioned Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus points out a great truth at this point. He just disconnects poverty from being blessed by God. Verse 3, Neither, neither this man nor his parents sin, Jesus answered. This came about so that God's work might be displayed in him. Jesus makes a remarkable claim here. This guy's poverty, his blindness, and being where God wants him to be, and God working through him actually go together. God is responsible for the circumstances, not sin or error or getting things wrong. That could really change the way we look at poor people, couldn't it? But back to the story, Jesus is asking his disciples to see the world clearly. Did you notice that? The chapter is all about seeing and the disciples aren't seeing the world as Jesus sees the world. And the chapter is inviting us to see the world as Jesus 
sees the world. But it's going to be a little bit of a complex ride because look at what Jesus does next so that you can see the world the way he does. Verse 6. After he said these things, he spat on the ground, made some mud from saliva and spread the mud on the eyes of the blind man. Now, what a remarkable thing to do. Can you imagine being there on the day? Now, I've got kids, and one of the first things you teach kids is spit is gross. I don't know why you need to teach kids this, but you need to point it out to them that spit or snot or phlegm, it's just something that you would, of course, you you don't even wipe it on yourself. You've got to point out that a sleeve is not for snot. This is the sort of stuff we just want to hide and get rid of. It's not for you, but it's definitely not for others. You know, you've got to teach your kids the only time you ever spit in public is when you're in a car doing 100 k's an hour down the freeway so no one can see who it was and you're just on the way out of there. You just, you just don't spit in public. But look at what Jesus does. He, he spits on the ground. Now, that's gross. But then he makes mud dirty. Why? And puts it in the man's eye. Now, we've all been to the beach. What's it like when you get sand in your eye? When you get mud in your eye? It's almost like Jesus is trying to make someone angry. And in fact, people are going to get angry, but it's all going to be a little bit odd as to who it is. But what on earth is Jesus doing? He's he's spitting, he's making mud. Verse 7. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. And you always know the word significant in John when it's translated for you which means sent. Go, he said, wash your pool in Siloam, which means sent. Now, of course, the key idea here is that Jesus, if you like, has put this guy in a situation where he's now dirty. He needs to be washed. He's got mud in his eyes. His eyes are the problem. He needs to wash his eyes in order to see. And so this man, again, he's bland. He just does what he's told. He's passive. Everything kind of reacts around him. So he does that, and then something extraordinary happens. So he he left, he's just doing what he's told, and he washed. He washed himself, that is, he, he cleansed himself, he became clean, and he came back seen. Can you see some of the imagery that Jesus is picking up on here? Why couldn't he see? Well, Jesus is trying to link blindness with being dirty, Remember, this is all going on during the period of the feasts where you celebrate the fact that you're now clean before God. That is, you've been forgiven. The whole feast of atonement. And Jesus makes this guy dirty and then makes him clean himself so that you can actually see the consequences of being clean. Once you clean yourself, you can see. But what is it that you can see? Well, the introduction to this chapter, again, is all about who Jesus is. Now that this guy can see, he can see Jesus. And if you can see Jesus, you can be forgiven. And if you can be forgiven, you're on the right side of God and you can really join into these festivals that are going on at the time. You can enjoy living with God. But what's really interesting about this guy is that once he is healed by Jesus, he almost then takes the place of Jesus. He almost becomes Jesus in the flesh. Jesus is going to hide. He's going to go away and become somewhere else. But it's almost like all the speculation that's about to take place around this man, 
revolves around the way that people treat Jesus. He's Jesus' almost messenger by default. And people are going to start questioning who he is, just like they've been questioning who Jesus is. And you see a little bit of that going on in verse 8 and following. His neighbours and those who formerly had seen him as a beggar said, isn't this the man who was begging? You know, who is this guy? And I've got to admit, if Nathaniel, if that student of mine, just wandered up to me tomorrow and he could see and he wandered up and said, oh, that's what you look like, Dave, and we sort of had the introduction, I'd probably assume that I'd made a mistake somewhere along the line and went, now, hang on, who are you? That's what some of the people are doing. But, of course, others, verse 9, no, no, he's the one, they were saying. While others were saying, no, but he looks like him, they kept, but he kept saying, rather, verse 9, I am the one. And John's really clever with words. There's this speculation going on, who is he? And so he declares, verse 9, I am the one. And in Greek, that's just ego amy. In Hebrew, that's just Yahweh, I am who I am. He's, if you like, taking the place of Jesus. And if you want to figure out who Jesus is, you've got to figure out what happened to this man. And if we can figure out and the Pharisees can figure out what's happened to this man, we've got a chance to figure out Jesus. We've got a chance to see God. That's the introduction. It's all about Jesus and his identity. Who is he? And it's going to be tied to this man. Well, let's keep reading. Uh, In verse 13, they bring the man who used to be blind to the Pharisees. And this is the point where the Pharisees now get to either join in, join in the celebration during the time of feast, get to join in the saving acts of God, get to celebrate what God is doing, or they get to uh, replicate the mistakes of old. Remember, when God's people were first saved by the great signs of God in the Exodus event, instead of enjoying God, they just whinged and grumbled in the desert. And wouldn't it be a tragedy if that's what the Pharisees do now? But of course, that is what they go on to do. Verse 14. The day that Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes was a Sabbath. What's the significance of that? Well, if you like, verse 14 is a bit of a challenge. Are the Pharisees going to get on board with the wonderful miracle that's happened? A man can now see. Or are they going to look for an opportunity to whinge and complain? Verse 14 is one of those invitations that gets to show us where you really sit before God. Are you going to join in and celebrate? Or are you going to whinge? Well, verse 15 we read that they were told that Jesus put mud on his eyes and he washed and he was able to see. It's a miracle. Like the great ten miracles of God in the book of Exodus, everything that Moses was a part of. What are the Pharisees going to do? Verse 16, therefore some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he doesn't keep the Sabbath. Can you imagine complaining about that? Like, can you imagine knowing somebody who was blind and they come back, say, from an operation at the hospital and they can see and they're blind, uh, they can see now, they were blind, everyone's super excited, everyone's celebrating, uh, but then the father comes into the room and he says, hang on, How much is that going to cost me? What's the bill uh, for the time there at uh, the hospital? And, of course, he opens the bill in front of the son. He realises he's got to pay, what, $50? Something trivial compared to the value of being able to see. And the father is just so 
angry, so unloving, so insensitive that he just concentrates on this small bill rather than the miracle. And the Pharisees are like that. A man is now able to see and they're concentrating on the fact that it was done on the Sabbath. They're concentrating on Jesus making the mud. It's almost as if Jesus did that deliberately. That he spat on the ground and made the mud so that your heart could be revealed. So that either you could concentrate on the mud and the mud could get on your eyes and mud in your eyes stings and so you could complain and whinge and just be opposed to everything that God is doing or you could get on board with the celebration. But of course that's not something that the Pharisees were able to do. Others were saying, how can a sinful man perform such signs? And there was division amongst them. How are they going to decide the way forward? Their division, they're not sure who to believe. Is this the blind man who's been healed? Has something else happened? Now, what would be great at this moment is if you could settle the matter through witnesses. Now, what would be really good about that is in John chapter 8, when Jesus introduced himself properly as I am, as God in the flesh who has come to his people, the Pharisees responded to Jesus in John 8, well, we don't believe you because you've got no witnesses. So maybe, John chapter 8, the reason the Pharisees aren't on board with Jesus is because Jesus doesn't have any witnesses as to who he really is. We get into the next chapter, what's happened, Jesus has healed somebody, but the healing is in dispute. Imagine if witnesses could be brought forward that could actually testify to the magnificent miracles that Jesus has done, miracles that were just like God of the Old Testament, that would clear up the whole identity issue and help the Pharisees get on board. And that's exactly what happened. Some witnesses are brought in, that's what the Pharisees were asking for, and we get the glimmer of hope. Maybe the people of God are going to join in the feast, the festival. Maybe they're going to join in the celebration. Now the first witness that they call in is of course the blind man himself. So verse 17, they ask the blind man, What do you say about him? Jesus' identity. Who is he? Since he opened your eyes. He is a prophet, he said. But of course, one witness isn't enough. You need more witnesses than this. And here's where it gets really interesting. The witnessing now is all about the son. So they call in the father to testify about the son. Because if the father can testify about the son, the Pharisees might believe who the son is. And as soon as I explain it like that, we all get a bit lost and go, hang on, which father is testifying about which son? Because hasn't God the Father just testified about God the Son so that we can believe in the Son? And now, to try and nail Jesus' identity, we've got another son and another father testifying. It's all about identity. If we can get on board with who this son is, then we can see the miracle, we can see who Jesus is, and forgiveness is on offer. And so they cause, uh, ask rather the father to testify, verse 19. They ask him, is this your son? Is this the one who stood up and said, I am? I am the man who was blind. Is this your son, the one they, uh, you say was born blind? How then does he now see? We know this is our son and that he was born blind, the parents answer. There you go. The matter should be settled. Is this the blind man? Yes, it is. We've got the parents testifying. We've got the son testifying. But here is where we get a little hint. Maybe not everything is going to work out. Verse 21. But we don't know how he now sees. We don't know 
who opened his eyes, ask him, he's of age, he will speak for himself. Notice the confusion again. It's coming back to this point, who healed him? Which ironically is about the only thing the Pharisees know. They know who healed him. But they're not willing to admit who Jesus is. Verse 22, his parents said these things because they were afraid of the Jews, since the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him as Messiah, he would be banned from the synagogue. And here again is where the context of this chapter is really helpful. What was the great tragedy of the Exodus when God showed those miraculous signs as to who he is, the God of the whole world? The tragedy was that the leaders of the people of Israel responded by grumbling and complaining and whinging And they actually then led the people of God away from God. And they were punished for 40 years. What's happening here? Well, again, the leaders of the people of God are leading the people away from God. They're leading the people away from I am. They're leading the people away from Jesus. And they're threatening them with being distant from God. If you hang around Jesus, we're going to cut you off. From God, And wouldn't it be terrible if the Pharisees were able to do that? And so our passage uh, gets to its knife edge. The parents insist, ask him, he's of age. And there's still that glimmer of hope, maybe, maybe people will recognise who Jesus is. Uh, and of course we get that glimmer of hope again there in verse 24. So a second time they summon the man who had been born blind and they say, give glory to God. Now wouldn't it be great if that was their genuine ambition? Give glory to God, but then we see the way that the Pharisees are never going to see Jesus clearly. Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. They've looked at Jesus. They've still got the mud in their eyes. They're blind. They're unclean. They are distancing people from God. They're distancing people from Jesus. We know that this man is a sinner, but this Jesus, we don't even know where he's from. Can you see the way that the situational blindness has actually crept into the Pharisees' life? That they can see with their eyes, but relationally, circumstantially, they're blind. They've got the mud in their eyes, they can't see, they refuse to recognise who Jesus is, and like everybody with mud in their eyes... It stings and they end up getting angry and lashing out at the people around them. And yet, it's as the Pharisees lash out and get angry that we actually see the second miracle, I reckon, of this chapter, and that's the miracle of the man born bland who now gets a bit of colour. It's interesting, everything happens to the blind man. He's passive, he only um, answers questions when he's asked, But as soon as the heat's applied, and as soon as there's a little bit of a threat that things are going to be uncomfortable, as soon as he's put under pressure, look at the way he comes alive, and he gets some colour, and he gets some backbone, he gets a bit of spunk about him, and in fact, what he truly becomes is the person he claimed to be in verse 9, the man. I reckon he becomes a picture, not just of what it's like to see, but a picture of what it means to become truly human. A true man. What does it mean to be a true man? Well, it means to do something a little bit like this. Verse 30. When they ask the man again, who is Jesus? He answers them like this. This is an amazing thing, the man told them. 
You don't know where he is from, where Jesus is from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he listens to him. Throughout history, no one has ever heard of someone opening the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he would not be able to do anything. See the way that this guy comes alive? And this is like the second miracle of this chapter. What does it mean to be truly human, to be a true man, a true woman? It means to be able to do something that you were created to do and something nobody can take away from you. This guy was blind. He was a beggar. He was poor. He was marginalised. He was the object of idle theological speculation. Everything happened around him. But then he met Jesus and he came alive. And although he was still poor... And although he's still going to end this chapter cut off from the people of God, the Pharisees are going to kick him out from the synagogue, he cannot help but do what he was truly created to do, to give glory to God, to testify as to who Jesus is, and to do that in a really stunning way in the face of opposition. It's this beautiful encouragement. Nobody can take away from you what you were created to do, to actually point out with clarity who Jesus is and the wonderful things that he's done. Now, I mentioned before, the Pharisees, they've still got mud in their eyes. Uh, they're angry, they're upset, and so they do lash out. Verse 34, you were born entirely in sin, they replied, and you are trying to teach us, and they threw him out. And the man, at one level, at the end of the chapter, is no better off. He was blind at the beginning of the chapter, couldn't see Jesus, And in one sense, he's still looking for Jesus at the end of the chapter. He can't find him, but this is what Jesus is like. Verse 35. When Jesus heard they had thrown out the man, he found him. That's what Jesus is like. He went out looking for the man, the man that had been rejected by his own people, and Jesus comforts him, and Jesus restores him. When Jesus heard that they had thrown out the man, he found him and asked, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir, that I may believe, he asked. Jesus answered, You have seen him. In every sense of the word, haven't you? You have seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. I believe, Lord, he said, and he worshipped him. And our chapter comes to the end, a beautiful chapter. This man finally sees God. He sees the Son of Man and he acts out true humanity, what it really means to be a man or a woman. He worships Jesus, declares something true about him. And that's the great challenge of this chapter. It's the chapter that invites you to see clearly, to see who Jesus is. But of course, it's also a chapter that warns you that if you can't see Jesus, if you reject Jesus, that there's consequences. Verse 39, Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment in order that those who do not see will see and those who do see will become blind. Some of the Pharisees heard these things and asked, "Uh, we aren't blind too, are we? If you were blind, Jesus told them, you wouldn't have sin. But now that you say we see... Your sin remains on you. And so again, by the end of the chapter, we have people who are blind and people who can see. 
but of course there's been that great reversal based on whether or not you know who Jesus is. So what do we do with this passage? We see. We open our eyes. What do we do with this passage? We look and we look to Jesus. And we don't stay blind. We open our eyes and see who Jesus is and we can see that as we read John 9, or we can see it perhaps in the experience that some of us have had where we meet the followers of Jesus and they just tell us about all the wonderful things Jesus has done. What do we do with this chapter? We open our eyes and we see. But not only that, we open our eyes and we become alive. We become like the man born bland. We go from being passive, we go from being just sort of following along whatever role our culture has given us, to being truly alive when we meet Jesus and we become a person who has vibrancy, life, colour, definition. This man went from being on the margins of his society and financially no better off, and yet look how vibrant he was by the end because he started speaking truly about Jesus. It's a passage that reminds you it doesn't matter where you are within your society, does it? You can have lots of power or a little bit of power, lots of money or a little bit of money, but nobody can actually stop you from doing what you were created to do. If you can see Jesus, you can see what life is all about. It's an invitation to join in, not just seeing who Jesus is, but actually truly living and declaring who he is. And also then, by pointing that out, it's a chapter that challenges us to think through the way that we see the people around us. Again, if you're anything like me, you're tempted to look at the people who are better off and congratulate them. You know, the people with the nicer houses and the nicer cars and the nicer jobs. If you're anything like me, you're tempted to look at those people and congratulate them for the choices they've made. You've worked hard. You must have earned that. God's favour must rest on you. Of course that stuff is yours to enjoy. Of course you should spend that on yourself because you've earned it. Well done, good and faithful servant. But this chapter turns that on its head. Why was this guy poor? Why was he marginalised? Why was he a beggar? Why was he blind? Because he was exactly where God wanted him to be. How are you going to treat the poor people around you? Are you going to treat them like they've made poor decisions? Like it's their fault? Are you going to look down on them? Of course you wouldn't share your stuff with them. It's their fault they don't have anything. Or might you be tempted to think, are you poor because God is God? Are you exactly where God wants you to be? And in fact, if you're poor because that's where God wants you to be and I'm rich because God is where uh, I am where God wants me to be, does that mean I should share? If I didn't earn it, and it's not your fault you're there, should I be kind? Should I perhaps share some of the stuff that I've got? Because overwhelmingly, what does this chapter ask us to do? It reminds us how good God is. This passage is all about these beautiful festivals that take place because God forgives his people and provides for them. He makes atonement and the festival of harvest, he gives us what we need. And if God is overwhelmingly generous towards us, if he forgives us and gives us everything that he need, we need, then of course this chapter is inviting us to enjoy the goodness of God and be thankful towards him. 
And how do you enjoy the goodness of God and say thank you to him? Well, you community, as a people group, you're kind to one another. There's a festival going on. You're inviting people to come in and enjoy the goodness of God and you're sharing. You're sharing what you have with others. It's a passage that reminds us of the character of God. It shows us clearly who Jesus is. It calls us to become Jesus to others so that they can see and be forgiven. And it, of course, asks us to see the world the way Jesus sees the world, which is not to think that some people have earned it and others haven't, but rather that God is the God of all, and so therefore all have a place. It's really quite a challenging chapter, isn't it? And so I want to leave you with this question. Can you see? Or does seeing just hurt too much and you'd rather keep the mud in your eyes? Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for the Jesus that we see in this chapter. Thank you for the way that Jesus showed us his power. Thank you that by showing us his power, he showed us his goodness and his grace, his willingness to forgive. Thank you that as he revealed God, he reminded us of the great saving acts of God who provides for his people and forgives them. Thank you for the way that this man born blind was forgiven, that he saw Jesus and was able to follow him. Thank you for the way that this blind man, this marginalised man, was actually able to introduce people to Jesus, was able to say true and wonderful things about him. Lord, we'd love to be that man, that person, somebody who could enter into the role that you prepared for us by speaking clearly about Jesus. But equally, Lord, we don't want to be like the Pharisees. We don't want to block off access to you, and we don't want to whinge. We want to be people who, like Jesus, are generous and who enjoy including others into the celebration and welcoming others into enjoying the good things that we have. We pray you'd help us to do this in Jesus' name. Amen.